Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken of the Jimmy Aiken Podcast, and you're being fortified with your regular dose of Catholic vitamins. But wait, there's more! Welcome to Catholic Vitamins, your dose of spiritual supplements from A to Z. Catholic Vitamins, specially formulated to help you achieve optimum spiritual health. It's time to energize your faith, forget what lies behind, and press on toward the goal. We've already won. Look at how far we've come. Let's fully embrace the change that has taken place. Here are your hosts for Catholic Vitamins, Deacon Tom Fox and his lovely wife, Dee. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Catholic Vitamins. Hello. It's Catholic Vitamin W for Worthy. We're going to be talking about a very worthy servant of the Lord God today, Father Ubald from Rwanda. And um, sadly, he is not living on the earth anymore, but we believe he's living with the Lord. And we'll get into all of that in an interview with our guest, Katesy Long. And I will tell you that this probably ranks in the top five interviews that we've ever done for Catholic Vitamins. I'm so anxious to share this with you. I hope you'll be able to turn off any distractions during this show and listen to a wonderful story of God's love and mercy and on the ministry, about the ministry of a priest, Father Ubald. And we'll cut our prattle a little bit shorter today because the interview ran a little bit long. We want to get it all in. Um, this is episode 470 for the World Wide Web and episode 118 for our local Catholic radio station, KPIH 98.9. In Payson. In Payson, Arizona. Arizona. And I might say to you, Dee, that we have um, talked about perhaps ending Catholic vitamins in June as I come to my 17th anniversary of being a deacon, and we'll be up to around 500 shows, oh, roughly. I think that's a good quit time, huh? Do you? Well, I don't know. We've been blessed with so many wonderful interviews and guests and uh, people that help inspire uh, growing faith from A to Z, nourishing faith from A to Z. This has been quite the journey, and I've loved it a lot. Sometimes we wonder, what are we going to do for our next show <laughs> But uh, we've always found something it. always pops in. Yes. So <clears throat> we'll be back uh, to the subject of Katesy Long in a little bit. Dee and I were at breakfast this morning talking about the beginning of Lent. As this show airs, it'll be just hours before the start of Lent, Ash Wednesday, but then it'll run through the first couple of weeks of Lent. And uh, I was saying that one of the things that I thought I would do is I would give up uh, morning sweet, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you grimaced. I did not. <laughs> I did not. You uh, you didn't act as if you were particularly overwhelmed with that idea. I actually came back and said that some years ago, we gave up sweets in the morning all during the week and just treated ourselves on Sunday. And so I was suggesting doing that again. Yes, I know. But that was enough to make me leave the church. I, <laughs> not, really, not really. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for me, just one of the things. And then another thing I asked you about was us doing a rosary together one evening. It's not that we shouldn't be doing the rosary on other days, but just to do it together. 
I know we, we, we often say we're going to do that and then we fall short in it, but for Lent, we will make a concerted effort to do it. One, one evening a week and uh, together. One, one, yes, thank you. And one of the things to do is to pray for the repose of the soul of Father Ubald and for the um, many people who lost their lives in Rwanda. A terrible, terrible story of uh, man's inhumanity to man. And I was looking at a, uh, I was looking at a video with Father Mark Goring, one of the priests that I signed up to follow each day, and he was talking about some terrible events that are happening in China, <clears throat> where upwards of a million people, a million people, are in camps because they're Christians and they're trying to deprogram them. They're being brutal to them. They're raping women. And uh, nothing is being done by the United Nations about this terrible, terrible thing. So we have lots to pray about, much less our own country, which is going through some terrible times with terrible leadership. D, um, we have a new priest coming into our community pretty soon. Over at St. Philip's. Over at St. Philip Parish. His name is Father Tom Quirk. And he's young. He's only 45, 46 years old. Is that right? Yeah. I think he was involved in... Psychological work or and behavioral health yeah, background. Yeah, 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 he was one therapy. He was at, working as a therapist, I think, before he went into the seminary. And he has uh, two master's degrees: one in philosophy and one in religion. And uh, he has uh, skill as a vocal performer, so he'll be leading some good music. In and I also found out in my reading that uh, you remember uh, John. Gonzalez, yes, the seminarian yes, yes. we yes. had at St. Philip's some years ago, that he, uh, Father John and Father Tom were ordained together. Oh, how nice, how nice. Well, in advance, we uh, welcome Father Tom Quirk, who will be coming in in the coming weeks to uh, Payson, Arizona. I know that's not of much interest to somebody listening in Ohio, but everybody is anxious for the beginning of a, a new priest in a parish and want to pray and welcome him. Uh, we have a visit coming up uh, in hours with the bishop from Houston for the ordinariate, and uh, we'll be involved in a meeting here in a little while with the bishop and the pastor, so we're looking forward to that. We better uh, stop our prattle for a few moments and take our first break. Hi, this is Denise Bossert, and there are more Catholic vitamins to come with Deacon Tom and Dee, so stay tuned and visit me at catholicbygrace.blogspot.com. Thank you, Denise, for a little promo for Catholic Vitamins. Dee, we were talking about Lent, and I think we've been finding out about a couple, three, four different ways that ashes are going to be dispensed in different parts of the country. I just read in, down in Tucson they're going to be doing it, sprinkling it on your head. Oh, my goodness, in my hair? Oh, my yes. goodness. Oh. And there was a pair of someplace, maybe Colorado, where they were going to dispense them using a Q-tip. Q-tip. Oh, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. Oh. Probably not where we uh, are worshiping. It'll be a little more traditional. Well, uh, we have a very special interview, as we've suggested, one of the most important interviews that we've done on Catholic Vitamins in our 12-plus years. And uh, we'd like to bring that to you now, and we'll see you on the other side. Next up on Catholic Vitamins, we have a beautiful, powerful, tender story to share with you. And you'll wonder... For a pro- program, a podcast, and a radio program originating out of North Central Arizona, why we will eventually or soon be talking about Rwanda and something that happened 
many years ago. But uh, it's a powerful story. We're anxious to tell it. <clears throat> and we're on the phone with Katie Long. Katie, before we explain why we're interviewing you, why don't we start by asking you to tell us a little bit about who Katie is. Thank you. Thanks so much. I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been in private practice for over 20 years doing counseling, therapy, families, children, and always integrating the, you know, my Catholic faith and Christianity into my practice, as well as with the background in trauma and working with um, clients with trauma. So that was what I was doing before I met, and while I worked with Father Ubald, um, I continued my practice and was working for him, quote with him, quote unquote, part time. And then um, because he would come to the states a couple of times a year, so I was in charge of his schedule and getting him booked in different places and approved where he could travel around the United States to get his message of forgiveness and reconciliation as a witness from the genocide in his work in Rwanda. So. And we met first in 2008. Sometimes I get foggy because I can't remember. It was 2008, 2009. And that's how we first met. And that's how we became acquainted and started working together. All right. Before before your meeting with the priest, Father Ubal, that we're going to talk about, would you tell our listeners something about the terror of what happened in Rwanda, the scope of it? Because it's important for us to to hear that. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1994, there were some smaller genocides that happened before 1994. But in 1994 was when um, the major genocide happened in Rwanda. It's the one that most people hear about and talk about when they speak of the Rwandan genocide. And during that time, there were two tribes in Rwanda, Hutu, three tribes, Hutu, Tutsi, and Betwa. Uh, Rwanda, before that time, before colonization, didn't really have tribes. Hutu and Tutsi were designated um, socioeconomic groups. So if you were middle class, you were Hutu. If you were upper class, you were Tutsi. Anybody could move in between those classes. It would just be middle class or upper class. Well, when colonization occurred and they tried to come in and and take over Rwanda and Africa when colonization happened all over Africa. Rwanda was one of those countries that was colonized. They came in and they decided to um, create kind of these tribes so that, I mean, I think part of being part of a ruling class, you want to make sure who you're ruling and keep them under your rule. So that's part of colonization. And so I think what happened was they took those socioeconomic groups and made them into quote-unquote tribes because tribes have different cultures, they have different food, they have different traditions, they have different languages. When you go into someplace like Congo or Kenya, whether you do have lots of different tribes, that's what marks different tribes is the different cultures, the different languages, the different foods, the different dress. And in Rwanda, they didn't have that. They all spoke the same language. They all ate the same foods. They all had the same customs and traditions. So, it really wasn't tribal, but it became tribal. And then leading up to 1994, it's so much more complicated than what I can explain in a few minutes, but they gave them independence in the 60s. And when they gave them independence, the Hutus became the ruling class, and they started to persecute the Tutsis. 
And so through um, media, through a different um, ways of creating opportunities that for us and them, that um, that the Hutus came the ruling class, started subjecting the Tutsis to where they weren't allowed to have education, they weren't allowed to be in the police or the army. You know, so there was definitely some persecution of that group of people. And then in 1994, when the president of Rwanda's plane was shot down, he was um, entering into peace talks and it was on his way home from peace talks. His plane was shot down and thus began the genocide. And there was definitely hit lists, lists of people who were targeted to be killed. It was, you know, groups of young people that were um, trained as kind of a guerrilla army on the ground. And then they had soldiers that were operating in such a way that they came in and started to slaughter all the um, Tutsis and, and a way of having Hutu power and eradicating the other, which was the Tutsi group, and just killing them because of who they were. Not because they did anything wrong, not because they were, it's because in their minds they were different. And so in the course of 90 days, over 1 million people were killed. And it was women, children, or older people. It wasn't just, it was moderate Hutus and Tutsis who were murdered in that span of time before the international community would not step in, other communities would not step in, even though there was cries for help. And it was um, an army of expatriates of of Rwanda who had formed an army who came in and started to um, defeat the the army that was causing the genocide and stopping the genocide. I'm sorry. Casey, I read that there was uh, like something like a million one hundred thousand people, I'll use the word martyred or killed, um, is it how could that happen in a hundred days? The only way, the, you know, it's something I can't wrap my mind around. And Uvald would always say, "You just will never understand how horrible the gen- how, how horrible genocide is." And he said, "And it was so evil." And his comment was that there were truly. An entire, you know, group, the entire population was possessed. And he will say that they were possessed by Satan and doing things that a, you know, a normal thinking, conscious person just wouldn't be doing. And it was fear based. They would use, they would, you know, we interviewed one person for the film that we did, and he talked about how he, um, it was either kill or be killed. He was. They were rounded up. They were told, as Hutus, they were told in their village that they needed to kill their neighbors. And and there's the, the elder of the village said, we're not going to do that. Those are our neighbors. And they shot him dead in front of everybody and said, anybody else want to object? And they're like, we'll be by tomorrow. We'll bring you your machetes and we'll bring you uh, things so you can start to kill. And he said, and they, you know, would round them up and they would do things at a certain time of day and they would round them up and say, now go out and kill them. And he said it was, I mean, he still has a hard time even, I mean, he did it because of sheer panic, terror, and fear. And he escaped one day to try not to do it and they shot him, and but he survived. So he said that was the kind of thing that you were living under, and it was the government that was doing it. So when your government is calling for you to do something, your authorities, your trusted authorities, you know, it's 
it's pretty hard to resist. So Father Ubald was a priest at that time, and he lost a significant amount of family. Can you talk about that? Yes. During the 1994 genocide, he'd been a priest for 10 years and had been at one parish for those 10 years. And he said it was a very viable parish. It was a very dynamic and charismatic parish. They had had retreats and charismatic, and had, and he and he still had his healing gift during that time, where they would have healings and services. And so, when the genocide started, within a matter of days, over eighty members of his family, including his mother, were killed. And he found that out. He had over, you know, he had his parish, which was a large parish at the time, but it, but because of who he was and um, people knowing who he was. They all came there for respite because in prior times when there was violence, if you went to the parishes or if you went to the churches, you would somehow be safe because they wouldn't attack people in the churches. In 1994, that was different. And so when he had people come into his church, he had 45,000 people in his yard, living in his yard, kind of in his compound of where his church and his rectory and everything was, the school. So they had a large compound that was kind of a gated compound and walled compound, and they had 45,000 people living there trying to escape from being um, from where they were because they knew they were going to be targeted to be killed. And so he hired a couple of guards. He tried to, you know, keep them there. But because of who he was and how outspoken he was, they knew they couldn't do anything while he was there. And so they, there was one man who was one of his parishioners who accused him of stealing and some other things. And so the, the local mayor and the local chief of police came to see, you know, what was going on and, you know, and did they all do these things? And he knew it was made up and he said, you know, go look, see what you know, see what you see, see what you find. There's nothing here, and um, that and that's when the mayor said, "Look, we think it's better if you leave because if you leave, you know, by you being here, it's stirring up a lot of problems, you know, stirring people up." And he said, "We think it'd be better for you to leave and not to, you know, and it'd be safer for your people if you left." And so they couched it to him as he'd be safer. And it was so pure of heart; it didn't occur to him that they would be lying to him, and so. He said, let me call the bishop. The bishop came and said, look, you need to, I agree with them. You need to come with me. And the bishop, and then all the women and children started sobbing and crying. They're like, we know we're going to be dead as soon as we all leave. And they totally, you know, started wailing. And the bishop said, I'll stay here with you tonight. Ubald can go to my house. And his house was about an hour away, an hour and a half away from this particular parish. And so, um, Duval took his car and went back, and he said it let me walk the crowd like they parted and made a path for him, but they were all sobbing as he walked out. Mm-hmm. And by this time, his family had been killed. He was hoping that, that he was doing the best thing for his parish and his prisoners and those who had come to him for safety. He went to the bishop's house. The bishop stayed with him for the night. He went to the bishop's house and just, you know, wept and cried. And then the bishop came in the next day, and the bishop had blood all over his um, cassock, and he asked what happened, and the bishop was bringing a couple of brothers and another priest out with him to bring him, to bring them to the house, and the guards at a roadblock stopped him, pulled him out, saw that they were tootsies, shot him, threw him in a ditch, and told the bishop he could go on. Oh and so, and so, he, when he came to Ubal's, the house, back to the house, he was crying and praying, and Ubal was in the chapel praying, 
And then within three days, they'd cut up all the water supply and the food supply and everything to the people in the in the parish. And then they um, started killing them. And it took them three days to kill everybody. And um, because they were so weakened with lack of food, lack of water, lack of anything that they couldn't really, and they didn't have anything to fight with. They didn't. Have, they had. They could pick up rocks in the yard. That was it. And so um, within three days, they had murdered the whole everybody, the 45,000 people. And Ubald at that time was so devastated, he wanted to go back and die with them. And he heard in prayer from God not to go back. And so that he had a mission for him. And so that wasn't the exact words, but that's what he heard. And so he didn't go back. And a few days later, because of the feeding frenzy and the frenzy of the killing, and and these were his parishioners killing other parishioners. They weren't some foreign army coming in. His parishioners killed other parishioners. And so he heard from a good friend of his who was a priest um, at the cathedral that there was a group coming down to the bishop's house looking for Ubald because they wanted to cut his head off, put his head on a stick, and process through the streets with his head on a stick so everybody would know that he wasn't so powerful. So when the bishop, when this priest called in to tell him that, Ubald took whatever money he had left in his account and his own personal account, he paid for himself and five other people. That's all the money he had to escape. And so he escaped in the middle of the night. They had to pay this man to take him out. He said, at the time I paid him, I wasn't sure if he was going to turn us in or if he would really let us escape, but we had to, that was all our only choice. And one priest who was supposed to meet them never met them at the at the meeting point, and they later found out he had been caught and killed. And but the other five of them went through the night, and they crossed the Congo River, and they got into the Congo by the next morning, and went into the Congo, and he stayed there at a convent for a couple of months to recover. And then some friends from France and some friends from Austria called and said he they actually was a big charismatic group who was having a meeting in France and they wanted him to come speak about the genocide. But in the meantime his friends from Austria called and said, We want to send you money. We have a group going to Lourdes, meet us at Lourdes and they can bring you back. So that's how he ended up leaving Congo and going over to Europe and recovering from the genocide. My my <clears throat> All right. There's so much to cover in this powerful story. Um, so father spends some amount of time in Europe, but how, he spent the next six months in Europe, just recovering from the genocide okay. and to make sure it was safe to return, you know, cause they still had a war going on. He escaped in May. I mean, his family was killed and he was targeted very quickly after the beginning. So he, it was May when he was at the Bishop's house and the genocide didn't, wasn't stopped till July. And then the you know, then they had to kind of get the country settled and fully under their, you know, under the genocide stopped everywhere in the country, and so he didn't come back into the country till January. Well, uh, somehow or other, uh, Father Ubald has a, a part of his experience that led him to the United States. I'd like to hear the, how that happened, and then how you became a part of his life work. Okay. Well, so. He had a gift of healing before the genocide where he would pray for people for healing. Early on when he was a priest, his they had a cholera epidemic in his diocese and in his parish area. And the pastor was too afraid to go to church. So he said, he, of course, sent the associate pastor, why don't you go to the hospital and pray for people for cholera? So he gathered a group together and they started praying. 
at, you know, at the church for the end of the epidemic. And he said, and they fasted and prayed as a group for a month. And at the end of that month, the epidemic was over. But in the meantime, he would go to the hospital and pray with people, or people would come to their group and pray for healing. And then they would come back to tell him, we got healed. We got healed through y'all's prayers. And so then after a couple of years of doing that and praying for healing for people in their group, there's about five of them in their group, he started getting words of knowledge about what God was healing. So that gift of healing and that gift of the words of knowledge really started um, before the genocide. And then um, after the genocide, when he returned to Rwanda, he stayed in Kigali and he preached and he preached about forgiveness and other things. And he continued to do healing services and pray for healing for people because he realized everybody needed healing, the victims and the perpetrators. And so his bishop finally assigned him to a parish because he needed him in that parish. So he was working in that parish. But in the meantime, I don't know if you know of Immaculate Lubagiza, she wrote the book Left to Tell, and yes, she yes. had known him as a college student because he would come through town and he would do healing services. So he was known all over the country for his prayers and his healing services. And so she had known him and known of him, but not known him personally, but known of him for years. And when she was came to America and wrote her book and started traveling and talking to people, she realized not just Rwandans needed healing, and Americans needed healing too, that there was so much brokenness here. It wasn't just Rwanda. So she um, invited, she, so she, on one of her trips home, tracked him down, met him through a bunch of, through amazing circumstances that were only God's circumstances, and met him and invited him to come to America. And so because his English was not very good, she invited Father Leszek, who is a missionary priest from Poland at Kibeho. So the two of them came over to America and spent time with her in New York and did some healing services, went to Stockbridge because um, Father Leszek is the Divine Mercy priest. They've been in California, and on their way home from California back to Boston, or to Stockbridge, a friend of Father Leszek lived where I live in Wyoming, and so they stopped here. That friend was out of town. My pastor called me and said, look, these two priests from Rwanda are coming. One of them doing a healing service. I don't know what to do with these guys. Would you please entertain them, feed them, take care of them while they're here? So I took care of them at my home, had dinner for them each night, took them around. I live in a beautiful part of America at Grand Teton National Park. I mean, so we took them around and, and took care of them during that weekend. And Father Uvald was very forthright and he's not shy and actually I found the letter he had written me a nice letter saying I'm building a center for peace I would like to um would you help us do this and so I thanked him and he said well you can come to America you can come to Rwanda to visit us anytime come to Rwanda come to Rwanda and he kept writing to me and saying come to Rwanda so one of my friends who was healed at the healing service and his best friend who was healed of leukemia at the healing service and is still cancer-free to this day said, well, I'll go to Rwanda if you want to go to Rwanda. So I called another friend of mine who I've been on part of a prayer group where we did inner healing prayer and generational healing prayer. And we had done a lot of work together many years in um, healing prayer work around the United States. And I said, well, do you want to go to Rwanda? So she said, sure. So the three of us went. I thought it would be a nice visit, and we would just enjoy our time and meet Father Ubald. And we were there for about a week. And I came home, and I thought that was really lovely. Thank you, know, thank you, Father Evolved, for this lovely time. And then I got an email a few months later 
I'm coming to America and you're in charge of my schedule. These are my days that I will be there. I'm like, what? What do you mean? What does that mean? I had never done anything like that in my life. And so I said, okay. I called the woman who organized their trip from Stockbridge. She's like, well, this is what I did. Called this person. So I, he came and I was in charge of his schedule. And so I just I took him to a trauma conference. I called some friends of mine in North Carolina, my sister in North Carolina said, you want this priest to come? He has a great witness, a great message, and he has a healing gift. So that was the beginning of kind of a dog and pony show for a while before he became known and people knew who he was and, and his message and the fact that he had as a priest could, you know, pray for healing for people in the mass and, so it then got to a point where the demand was greater than the time that he was here. So, it, But that took 12 years of, of doing lots of things to help him. And in the meantime, I produced an, a film about his life, a documentary film that's out on YouTube that we have copies to be bought. And another helped him get a book written about his life and his work and the five keys that he uses for healing and forgiveness. And um, so that's how it started. And that's where it continued. So um, he's been all over the United States. He's been all over. The thing about it is Immaculate is very famous in the United States. But when you go to Rwanda, he's like the Billy Graham of Rwanda. I mean, oh, when, they do a service, when they do a healing service in Rwanda, they have to have a stadium. I mean, he commands anywhere from 30,000 to 80,000 people come to the events that he would do in Rwanda. But when he came to America, I'd be begging people to come. You want to come? You want to come? You know, 25 people would show up. And that was the total opposite of his, you know, of his notoriety and in, in, um, in, in Rwanda. So, um, yeah. So, so when you're in Rwanda with him, it's 30,000, 80,000 people that come. What, what was your witness or experience when you were in Rwanda the first time at Sounds like you may have been there multiple times, but what was your experience? Did you see any manifestations of God's power through healing or? Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I've been to Rwanda probably 15 times now over the last years. And yes, you definitely see the manifestation of God's presence. One of the things that I tell people all the time, when you come to a church in America it's kind of like we act like it's old news. We don't mm-hmm. act like it's good news. Yeah. And when you go to an when you go to Rwanda, and especially when it's a healing service, I mean, when you go to a regular mass in Rwanda, I mean, their choir, their choir you know, sings in a five part harmony naturally. I mean, yeah, it just is a beautiful experience. When you go to a charismatic or a healing service in Rwanda, it's so dynamic, and you know that they figured out that it's good news. And there is so much joy and celebration and exaltation, not only in God, but in the power of God. But I think, too, so many people after the genocide lost their faith. Ninety percent of the country of Rwanda was Christian. Over 60 percent of that Christian population was Catholic. And And so the genocide happened in that context. And so and I would ask Google about it all the time. And he said it's because people were Christian because they were culturally Christian, but they weren't converted in their hearts. And so there's a big difference between a, going to a mass on Sunday and sitting in a pew 
and having a conversion experience. And he knew that. And so he spent the last 30 years of his life having helping people encounter a living Christ. And healing and forgiveness were his two vehicles for having people encounter the truth of the gospel, which we have a powerful God. He is a living God. He is present to us. And forgiveness blocks us from him, but we have to encounter him in order to be converted and change our lives. So that is what his message always was. And when I spoke to one of the women who was with me at the hospital, who's Rwandan, she said, I don't think you will ever understand the impact of who he is in our life. He brought us hope after the genocide. He brought us Jesus in a way that we encountered him and that we knew he was alive. He basically pulled us out of the genocide and and brought us into that living relationship and with hope and healing. She said, that is who he is to everyone in my country, not just Catholic. Oh, oh beautifully powerful. If I could just digress for a second. <clears throat> uh, I was with a dear, dear lady, a volunteer for our Catholic radio station this morning, and we were on a call. We were heading towards a visit that we had arranged to visit a nonprofit organization to help them. And I was talking with this volunteer lady as we were driving about the beauty of the ordinary church that I'm serving at as a deacon, mm-hmm. um, as, as a very traditional Latin-looking sounding mass or reminiscent of the old times. And she was talking about how much she loved the beauty of that. I said, but I also deeply love charismatic worship. And I was talking to her about a parish down in Phoenix that is somewhat charismatic. And this lady did not have that joy. Uh, I really related to what you were saying about healing services that uh, Father Ubal did in Rwanda and how people were passionately <clears throat> enjoying the love of God and, and uh, knowing his power and his love and his mercy and healing. And uh, I have that in my own heart, but I can also stand in an ordinary at Mass and you know face the uh, tabernacle and not have a Mass where I'm facing the people. And so... Uh, I enjoy both forms of worship a lot. And Ubal would say the same thing. I mean, he would say, you know, when he's doing benediction and he's, you know, singing in Latin, he would say the same thing. It's all about prayer and connection and whether it's a rosary. But I think what what most happens to so many people is they don't have a relationship with God. So the, the, when you have that kind of form of the Latin form and not facing the congregation and those kinds of things, then makes sense to somebody. The math does not make sense to somebody. How we move into the sacraments makes no sense to somebody if they don't have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Amen. Because all of those things are there to foster the relationship, not take the place of the relationship. And for many people, that is what they have a relationship with, which is the ritual but they don't know the person. Amen. 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 Well, listen, um, I'm watching our time. This has been 
very powerful. Uh, how many times did Father Ubald come to uh, the United States, and how how big did his work become here? I know you said it started very small, um, and then uh, what happened in your multiple trips to Rwanda? So, for the for his time in America, it got to where we were. He was coming twice a year for several months each time. And then I would get him booked in different areas of the country. So like he would go to Chicago and he would spend 10 days in Chicago and he would just be in a different church every night doing masses and doing healing services or speaking at schools or speaking in different venues. And so he became pretty well known all over Chicago and has a pretty large following in that area. So we got to the point where we could kind of focus on one area he did a lot of work at the Shrine of Our Lady Good Help in Green Bay. It was very mm. close to the bishop there. Yes. Did an entire week with the bishop on the road in six different dioceses, doing healing services, speaking about forgiveness as one of, especially in, the, in post, you know, um, the sexual abuse crisis of America. So there was, you know, he got to be known. The thing about Ubald is that he was all about relationships. It wasn't about running from this place to that place. It was about helping people connect with Jesus and, it, and to understand the power of forgiveness. And it was about relationships. So there was quite a few places around the country where he had quite a few, you know, close relationships. I've gotten people reaching out to me from Trinidad to California to New York to Boston to Iowa to Ohio, Minnesota, Chicago, Green Bay, Louisiana. Texas, I mean, all these different places where he had been and it touched people's lives. So he had talked to, and, and it all didn't, he wasn't there about the big venue. He was there about where's the invitation coming? I'm going to go there. Can they pay me? I don't care. I'm going there. Yeah, and so it was, poor people deserve to have Jesus too. Mm-hmm. So he never, it was never about the venue. It was never about how big the group was. It was more about the invitation and where the Holy Spirit led and he would go. So he went to different conferences. Um, he would also speak with Immaculate when she had like some of her conferences, or he would be at a church service where there's 30 people. I mean, it just he was there to serve Jesus. That was it. Amen. So, what was the reason that you had so many trips to Rwanda? So, um, for the most part, well, I, I, as a therapist, because I've worked so much in trauma. There were several times we went back with different groups and we would do did trainings for, let's say, the priests of his diocese to um, on trauma and how to handle trauma and what are the signs and symptoms of trauma. He's also building, he was building a center for peace and reconciliation. So I went back with the team to look at the center with engineers and architects and to help him. When Once we helped him raise the money to buy the property, then we were helping him with some of the infrastructure so there was groups that we went back for that. There was times he started an order of the Missionaries of Peace of Christ the King. So I went back several times to do some trainings, workshops, retreats for his order. I also was the executive producer of a documentary film that we did on him. So I took two different trips where I took film crews where we, you know, for three weeks at a time to film and um, what we needed for the film. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. And I went, last year I went to the dedication of they just finished the church at the Center for Peace, which was the first building to be dedicated. So I went for the big ceremony and dedication of the church. 
Um, so just different things over the years. Okay. So, um, I'm going to tell you that I think of myself, this is self-serving to say, I think of myself as being somewhat connected on the World Wide Web and to the faith. And uh, I've interviewed bishops and priests and singers and authors and whatever. And I have a dear friend in Milwaukee, a priest friend that I know from Franciscan University, who uh, was telling me about a father you bald. And I said you know, I don't, I don't have any idea who you're talking about. He said, you haven't heard of Father Ubald? And I said, no. And he said, well, he's sick, and you need to pray for him. Mm-hmm. So I put Father's name on my prayer list. And can you begin to talk a little bit about that part of Father's life? So he came over last February 6th for his regular time, you know, for his two-month time. And we'd set up a lot of evangelization for him around the country. He spent three weeks in California. He spent time in Iowa, Ohio, Washington, D.C., um, Chicago, Michigan. So he was kind of all over the map. So we wanted to come to Jackson because he always liked coming to Jackson. And when by the time he got here, every place he'd been, he was about a week ahead of COVID so, and shutdowns of COVID. And by the time he got here, about March 5th, they shut down everything in Michigan and uh, in Chicago, so we had to close that part of his um, evangelization down. And he ended up just staying here and because of COVID and the quarantine and the lockdown. So he was here from March 5th last year. And then because he can't stand not helping people, we worked on how to do Facebook Live and to do rosaries on Facebook Live on his page. So we were doing Facebook Live rosaries. And he would get up to 20,000 views, you know, on his rosaries. Um, and we would do them four days a week. And it was the first time he had not been in Rwanda during the ceremonies and the commemoration of the genocide. So he did a special thing during that week time on Facebook Live for people in Rwanda for the genocide memorial. And then he stayed in the States because of his country being shut down and COVID. And so he stayed here up until August. And when August... He was with me, and then in August, he went to visit another friend in Wisconsin and Chicago just to visit a couple of people of his friends, and then he did a healing service at the Shrine of Our Lady of Good Help and came back here because he was just going to be here for about another week or two, go back to the Shrine, do a nine-day novena for the uh, intercession of our country and the elections, and fly home. And when he got here on October the Tenth, I think, is when he got here. By October 14th, he started having symptoms of COVID. By October 17th, we tested, and he both and I got COVID from him. So we both had COVID by October 22nd. He was not doing well, so I called the ambulance and put him in the hospital. And he was here in our hospital for a week. And because we're in a small rural community, they were afraid if he got really sick, they wouldn't have the ability to help him. So they went ahead and life-flighted him out of here down to Utah, Salt Lake City, University of Utah. And while he was down there, it was everything that he's doing great. We're going to talk about sending him home on Friday. Then he would, something would happen and he would not be doing well. So it was this roller coaster ride from hell. He had blood clots. He had, yeah, I mean, just everything that could go wrong was going wrong. So they intubated him. I couldn't visit him. Nobody could visit him because it was a COVID unit. They intubated him. They put him on the, you know, they put him in a medically induced coma for a couple of weeks. 
when he came out of the coma, they put him on the tracheostomy, and he just never could get off the ventilator. And and because his lungs were so damaged from the COVID and from the ventilator, he just his heart ended up kind of giving out because it was trying so hard to get oxygen into the lungs. The lungs were so damaged that he couldn't, um, he wasn't going to be able to recover unless God gave him a miracle. So he was, you know, he stayed with us for, he got to the point where he had like an event on November, on December 5th. And so I was able to go down and then I was able to stay with him until he died on January 7th. But, um, so he was getting stronger and doing better, but his lungs just never recovered. And he always used to tell me, Jesus heals so many people through me, but I always have to go to the doctors. And so I feel like he did his purgatory on earth. I feel like he suffered greatly with great humility in the hospital. And I was able to be with him when he died and pray, praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. As I got to the fifth decade, he was gone. And so... It was a brutally devastating time. It's still heartbreaking. The entire country is in total shock, and the entire country is in total grief. I mean, this is like the Billy Graham of Rwanda, you know, and so the whole country just still can't believe it, and his body's still here, and we're working on trying to get the body back to Rwanda so that he can be with his people and be home. So that's what we're working on now. I know I know that it will be personal, it will be powerful. Will you be taking anyone with you to film? I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that will want to be a part of it. Yeah. Bye. Right. Well, because of the COVID lockdowns, one of the things we have, we were already working on another 10-minute uh, film, not a full-length film, but a 10-minute film just to kind of update people on what the center was and how we were moving forward and what the vision was for the next phase. So I thought about taking that videographer with me, but I think with the shutdowns the way they are, we've been able to find a couple of, and because I'm not sure what's going to happen with the funeral and how many people can actually attend the funeral. And I didn't want one of us to take the place of a Rwandan who wanted to be there. I mean, this is a man who had would fill a stadium with 80,000 people. And they're telling me that only 15 people can go to his funeral. So, I mean that you know I mean so that you know, I mean I just didn't want any kind of American to take that place. So at this point, what I'm going to do is is take him home, take him back to his family, take him back to his people, and for them to have the funeral the way they can have it in this time. And so then we're going to uh, somebody has given us the money to build a chapel over where his grave will be. And the thought is what once the COVID restrictions kind of lift and people can gather together in large groups again, that they would do some kind of large memorial at the, one of the stadiums and then dedicate that chapel and do some things like and have a big event at the Center for Peace where he'll be buried, where he's going to be buried. So the hope is that when that happens, I would take a videographer with me for that and I would, um, be able to do the interviews I want to do and do some of the other things. And they just assigned a new bishop last week to his diocese. He hadn't had a bishop for two and a half years, so that bishop would be installed. And so I would have a better idea of kind of what to talk about and do. So, <sighs> And so that's kind of the plan. And, and some of the Americans, have, we did a funeral in Salt Lake last week or two weeks ago. 
And so the goal for that was for the Americans who loved him and wanted to be part of that to be able to go say goodbye so that um, when we go back to Rwanda, it's a Rwandan time. And then at the time when we can go back for a larger event, then I would take a videographer then. Sure. Our guest on Catholic Vitamins has been Kate C. Long, who so graciously, even in this period of her own pain at losing her associate father, Ubal, agreed to come on Catholic Vitamins. We're so very, very touched and grateful. <clears throat> and, um, you, you know, just rest assured of our prayers. And I've moved Father Ubal's name from Prayers for Healing for uh, his reward and for his intercession for those that he loved so much and knew so much. Um, so uh, did you ever think that this would happen? In your life, Katie? No. 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 And it's all happened so fast, there's still some days I, I kind of struggle with believing that he's really gone. Sure. So, um, no, I never dreamed in a million years that COVID would take involved. <clears throat> or that you would have such a relationship like this come into your life. No, not in a million years. It's like everybody I talk to is like, well, what's your five-year plan? What's your, you know, like, I don't know. And I just have always been one of those people that have tried to do whatever God put in front of me. And it was kind of one of those things that put in front of me. And I just, I just did it one step at a time. I didn't do it with the thought of this is where I'll be in 10 years or 12 years or that I would, I mean, I firmly believe he, he should be a canonized saint in the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe this is a saint of forgiveness. This is a saint of reconciliation. And I, and I firmly believe he is the same. We do have an intercessory prayer that we wrote, that a friend of his wrote, that I'll send to you email. But I believe he should be a canonized saint. And I don't question his his being in heaven. Amen. Amen. And that miracles will continue to follow him. Katie, I can't think why it would happen, but if anybody hears this, we're on the World Wide Web or in our local community here on Catholic Radio, if somebody wanted to reach out for some reason, is there some connectivity information you can give? Um, we have an intercessory prayer, and I put it on the blog on his website. He has a Facebook page. We'll continue to update people on that Facebook page, just Father Uval Rijirangoga. And as far as um, just what's going on with the center and those kinds of things, we're in the process of continuing to, as a, we have a board of directors of a nonprofit that we started here in America for supporting the center and the mission. So we're, you know, again, in transition because we've lost him, but we're trying to continue that vision and move forward with his vision of what that's going to look like. So not only will it be a center in Rwanda, but it's going to be a, an opportunity for getting his message out, you know, training people on peace and reconciliation so that's what we're moving towards and trying to build because that was his vision and that's the vision that God gave him. So I think following us on Facebook, following you know his website, frubald.com and the Center for the Secret of Peace, you'll be able to see what's going on. Katie, uh, we have been talking about God's power and mercy and healing and Father Ubald's wonderful work and vision and his relationships and I don't want to end on a note that ignores the holy things that we've talked about 
But uh, as I said to you before we started our recorded time, God has not given me in my 17 years as a deacon, never given me any healing capability, but I'll pray for your accent. Would that work for you? <laughs> That's good. I, I will, uh, thank you, and I'm grateful for that. I don't know that it's going anywhere, but we, you you can try. <laughs> <laughs> Casey Long, bless you. We'll keep you in our prayers. Thank you so much, and God bless you and the work you are doing. Once again, this will probably be one of the top five interviews we've ever done in our 12 years of Catholic Vitamins. I'm so thankful to Katie, and I've already told her that. And uh, after the interview, she sent me a prayer for the intercession of Father Ubald, and I'll post that on our website for this show. And I will be adding that to my own prayer intentions, and I hope our listeners will as well. We have a book giveaway. Again. This is our extended book giveaway for Professor John Bergsma. For this month, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of Christianity. As you said, it was written by John Bergsma. I've uh, probably read half of the book now. I know I'm a little slow, but I've got other things I'm reading in the evening before uh, turning the lights up. And this is an amazing book that shares um, where the Jewish people were in part Uh, at the time that Christ walked the earth and about the effect of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, the community, the Qumran community, uh, on uh, the worship of a certain part of the Jewish people and the tie-in to our sacraments. So it's it's really, really wonderful and inspiring reading, for sure. If you'd like a copy of that book, uh, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, courtesy of Dr. John Bergsma, Send an email to catholicvitamins at gmail.com, catholicvitamins at gmail.com, or call D's favorite number. What happened to it? 928 363 4144. 928 363 4144. Try to put that back up on your computer. It fell off and it got bent. So I guess we should probably begin our wrap up. I just am so grateful for the grace of uh, some of the people who agree to come on Catholic Vitamins, and today was an example. Thank you, Katesy. We'll be praying for you for sure. Dee, you want to say goodbye? Anything else you want to cover before we say goodbye? Uh, I was going to ask for prayer intentions. We haven't asked people who listen to us to send us prayer intentions for a long time. Please All right. do that. All right. Post those uh, in an email that you send to us. We'll be happy to add those. And if you want them anonymous, we'll do that. If you want to mention any first names, we'd be happy to do that as well. Dear friends, thanks for listening to Catholic Vitamins. We'll see you on our next show. Bye. From A to Z, Catholic Vitamins. Don't enter the race without them. See you next time. This is Deacon Tom. Blessings.
tenderize the chose to.